Chapter 14 of The House of Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by S. Reeves. The House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney. The Violin. The next day came a note from Miss Gilbert inviting the Austins to supper that night. It had come just before the one o'clock dinner that the father and son always took together after the morning lecture at the university. Of course I accepted, said the doctor. The deansman was waiting. Accepted for both of us? asked Robert gloomily. Certainly, replied his father. I could not think you would not be willing to go. But, Dad, I'm in no mood to adapt myself to these ladies, who are strangers to me. I have an appointment at four to see the director at his studio. If I find that the singer is to be approached through proper introduction, you can readily believe that I might be bursting forth with a pain of joy to the midst of some grave discussion on the municipal government. Or if, on the contrary, it is made clear that I am up against a stone wall, well, my presence would add gloom to a coal mine. Can't you get me out of the supper scrape? I suppose I can send a second note and state that on seeing you I learned that your plans for the day were such that it would be difficult for you to accept the invitation. I'm sorry, Bob, because the ladies are unusually charming. Miss Gilbert's niece, an adopted niece, I believe is one of the loveliest girls I have come across in years. Don't talk of girls, Dad. There's only one girl now and henceforth. She has come right to the very heart of me. What do you say to walking over to the Hofgarten for a coffee? asked his father, pushing back his plate of nutshells. All right, replied Robert indifferently. The day is so mild there will be plenty of people to watch, and that always interests you. Human nature in the abstract has no appeal to me today. I'm only existing for the clock to strike four. They sat long under the trees, sipping their coffee and commenting leisurely on the life about them, and at a quarter of four walked out into the plats and crossed it. Turning down a narrow but important thoroughfare where a popular music dealer rented his upper floors to instructors on the piano or for practice rooms for students not allowed to do their work in the pensions or hotels, at the street door Robert paused a second, turning a trifle to take leave of his father. Dr. Alston reached out his hand and gave Robert's a strong, vital grip that spoke volumes and each nodded to the other and separated without a word. Robert found the great musician in the studio was cordially received, but firmly refused the name of the soloist. She sang, said the director, as a special favor to me, and I promised her not to print her name on the program, nor to tell her identity. She wished no publicity. You would not desire me to break my word. But, Herr Professor, please tell me this, said Robert earnestly. Is she a married lady? The professor's eyes smiled, although his mouth was grave as he replied in the negative. Robert's own eyes were flaming. Is she a fianced? he asked. The professor took a sheet of music from a stand and, looking down, rolled and unrolled it with his long, thin, nervous fingers. Not that I know of, he said calmly. A thousand pardons, Herr Professor, yet once more, does she live here in München? Again he waited a few seconds. It is not her home, he answered slowly, but I think she is still here. Robert rose to go, walked to the door which the professor politely opened for him. But just as he was about to step over the threshold, the professor halted him by that kindly smile in his eyes. There is a way, said he. The case appealed to his innate sentiment. He liked this broad-shouldered, straightforward, manly fellow with the clear open glance. He sympathized with him. 
The girl was his favorite piano pupil, and he felt that it might be for her welfare to meet this man, but he would be absolutely true to his promise to her. He only said, and this time his mouth shared in the smile as he queried, Can the gentleman have forgotten that there are many bloom at Halley in the city? Flowers, exclaimed Robert. Of course. But how can I send them? Send them to me, replied the professor with ardor. I will direct the messenger to the proper address. Robert turned and grasped the professor's two hands. His hotel was only two blocks away, but he hailed a taxi. He could not get there quickly enough. Even electricity was far too slow. He strode through the vestibule and into the writing room, wrote a brief letter of thanks to the professor, and in it enclosed his card within a smaller envelope, writing on the back of the card, Thanking you for the pleasure you gave me yesterday in the Lucas Kirshaw, and wondering if I may have the honor of expressing my appreciation in person. Then he whirled away to the most fashionable florist in Munchen, and had soon selected two dozen glorious long-stemmed pink roses, and had seen them laid carefully in a box with his letter and dispatched to the studio. He went out and walked miles, often consulting his watch, with mental comments like the following. By this time, they must have reached her. Perhaps she is not at home. Perhaps she will not be at home until supper time. Maybe not then. She might have gone out for tea and then to the opera. It begins tonight at 5.30. It's the Valkyrie. Possibly she is at home, has opened the box, has taken out the roses, has buried her face in them. At six o'clock he found himself out near Bavaria and her lions by the exhibition grounds. Thank heaven I'm out of that tiresome supper, he exclaimed aloud as there was no one near. I don't even want to talk to dear old dad tonight. Later he wandered back to his hotel, had some supper, and was apparently deep in a book when his father came in from his visit. You certainly missed it, Bob, said the doctor with enthusiasm. I haven't had such a delightful time in years. You would have enjoyed the conversation and I'm sure would have considered Miss Avery quite ahead of any girl of your acquaintance. Robert frowned and shook his head. You forget, father, said he. Pardon me, Bob, but I did forget. The whole affair seemed so visionary and my evening's pleasure was very real. I only longed for you to be there with me. Miss Avery must have some very devoted admirer, for I have never seen more wonderful roses than stood in a Nymphenburg jar in the sitting room. And by the way, Bob, it was like a bit of real home life to be in that room. They have occupied it for several years, and have banished the heavy red, blue and green German things and fitted it up in genuine American fashion. Our supper was brought up there. It was the first time in the years of comradeship that Dr. Alston had seemed to fail in sympathy, and Robert resented it keenly, and looked his displeasure. But Bob, said his father, I would like to know how you got on with the professor. I don't think you care a fenning, said Robert. Your head is filled with these Americans. And yours with another American, replied the doctor. Robert lifted his head quickly. How do you know that? he asked. I forgot to tell you he said, that Miss Avery knows who your fair singer is, but did not feel at liberty to tell her name. She said she is a countrywoman of ours. She knows her? Yes, we talked again of the oratorio, and I asked her particularly about the alto soloist. She says that the girl is a pupil of the same German teacher as herself. And I ran away from that supper? Dad, when do you call? I would have gone tomorrow, 
as I ask the ladies out for tea, but they are leaving for Bozen early in the morning for a couple of weeks. The next afternoon brought a note from the professor stating that he had received a note from the young lady in question, wishing him to thank her Alston for the beautiful flowers, but regretting that it would be inconvenient for her to receive him as she was about to leave Munich. Try Bozen, added the professor. The grand old brick, exclaimed Robert. Dad, why can't we make a weekend at Bozen? There's some good climbing. It is barely possible that Alice Gilbert will write, he replied. I would hardly like to seem to follow the ladies uninvited. But the next week came a sprightly letter from Miss Gilbert suggesting the weekend. It has been so refreshing, she said, to meet someone from home. Friday night saw the arrival of the two men. Robert was not so completely lost in his own project to fail to notice how unwontedly cheerful his father had been on the journey down. What has come over the dear old boy, he asked himself. And as sure as taxes, he hasn't a brand new gray suit. They had engaged rooms at a hotel across from the more quiet pension where the ladies had chosen to stay. But after supper, they went over and sent up their cards. You lose your heart to Doris Avery whispered his father as they waited a few moments in the salon. It's no longer mine to lose, said Robert with dignity. But I will surely find out all she knows about my singer. The ladies now entered, Miss Gilbert stately but radiant in trailing black, velvet, and diamonds, and Doris all in white with no jewels. She needed none but her eyes. Robert caught his breath as she approached. It was she who knew the secret that he would willingly give his fortune to discover. The ladies were carrying evening wraps. I have several tickets for Miss Craft's concert in your hotel tonight, said Miss Gilbert. Of course, you, like ourselves, are proud to have such an American girl prominent in the Munich Hof Theater. Her lovely voice, artistic acting, and modest, refined personality have endeared her to many. She deserves every atom of success that has come to her, said Doris. I once heard a man say that he took every opportunity he could to hear Fräuleincraft because of the inspiration she is to his character. To think how that slender, delicate little creature has persevered through all obstacles and made her way to wide recognition and respect as an artist and a woman. I love her. I regret not to have been able to forestall you on the tickets, said Dr. Alston to Miss Gilbert but this is the first I have heard of the concert. I am sorry to shorten your call, she replied, but we can visit between numbers. Shall we talk French? said Robert to Doris. Mine is getting so rusty in Munich. Mine too, she replied. We were not allowed to speak anything else in Lausanne, for all practical purposes, but I am much out of practice. I will be glad to brush it up. From the first moment, they found themselves congenial but differing enough in their viewpoints on some subjects to lend piquancy to the conversation. The American prima donna scored a success and held an impromptu reception at the close of the concert, and Dr. Alston and Miss Gilbert bore her off triumphantly for ices in the dining salon of the hotel, Robert and Doris following closely. By the way, said he nonchalantly, I understand that the alto singer at the Bach Oratorio is an American. Do you know her personally? Doris flushed a trifle. Yes, I know her, she replied quietly. Could you arrange to introduce me, Miss Avery? That is hardly within my power, Mr. Alston. I understand that she wishes for the present to remain unknown. 
Robert frowned and bit his lip. He did not see a mischievous sparkle in the eyes of his companion. Miss Avery, he said with determination, abandoning the French he had used all the evening and speaking in his mother tongue. It is impossible that you can know what this refusal means to me. I have had information that she is probably here in Bozen. Is that true? I think my aunt has seen her since we came, replied Doris. The concert had closed so early, according to the sensible German custom, that it was easy to consider a climb for the next morning, and the quartet were to meet immediately after breakfast and follow an easy trail up to the vantage point of 2,000 feet, where they could command a magnificent view of the snowy mountains. Alice, said Dr. Alston, as he walked across the road to the pension with Miss Gilbert, if you could possibly induce the young lady who sang in the Lucas Kirshaw to make her identity known to us, will you kindly do so? Robert has heard she is here. Yes, she is here, she replied with a queer tremolo in her voice. I'll do my best tomorrow. That night, Miss Gilbert and Doris sat long before their green porcelain stove in which a wood fire was burning. Doris, you are contrary, said Miss Gilbert with a shade of unprecedented annoyance in her tone. The man is obsessed by the intangible image of the owner of that voice. He is restless, tantalized, unhappy. Why can't I tell him the truth? Aunt Alice, I feel that he must love me and not my voice. He must love me so much for myself that the fact that I can or cannot sing will not make any difference. But it naturally would make a difference. Think of his pleasure, his pride. No, Aunt Alice, pardon me, but suppose that he has, as you say, become infatuated with my voice, and that I might lose the use of it, as so often occurs, am I to be made miserable by the knowledge that I no longer possess the power to hold his affection? If he grows to care so much for me, that he is willing to give over his search for the singer, then I have something on which to build. You have always been unique, Doris, replied Miss Gilbert, still slightly irritated. But in this matter, of course, I cannot interfere. He is a splendid fellow. Any girl might be proud to know him. I admire and like him very much, said the girl frankly. I will be glad of his friendship. You will keep my secret, Aunt Alice. Certainly, child. The next morning was a glory of blue and white and green and gold, cloudless skies, towering, radiant peaks, slopes of fresh, tender green enameled with spring flowers, and sunshine everywhere unstinted floods of it. The four were all experienced travelers, not easily to be profoundly stirred, but that morning the world seemed new created. The air was so clear and pure and life-giving that even the older people seemed to throw off any sense of bodily effort as they slowly ascended the mountain path and beheld wider and wider vistas of the glorious landscape, like the revelator city of vision, adorned as a bride for her husband. Robert had started somewhat moodily evidently with an effort to make himself agreeable. He kept close to Miss Gilbert for a while, leaving Doris to the delight of Dr. Alston. Having prevailed on Miss Gilbert to rest on a wooden bench beside the path, although she declared she was not at all tired, he sat down beside her, and with transparent tact brought around the subject that was on his mind. Father says, Miss Gilbert, that it may be possible for you to present us the singer we are so eager to meet. You have asked a hard thing, she replied, marking diagrams on the ground with her alpenstock. The lady is determined to remain incognito. 
I have a mind to break my stick like the unsuccessful suitor in the marriage of the virgin, said Robert. But you have kindly accepted an invitation to dine with us tonight. Will you at least point out the lady at a distance? If she is there, I, of course, agree not to make any advances nor to ask her name. She laid a gentle hand on his arm, and her eyes were sympathetic. You may be sure I will do all in my power to help you. He thanked her, and she rose to continue the tramp. She had comforted him so much that he felt almost gay with hope and was soon engaged in an animated conversation with Doris, who seemed an emanation of the beauty and harmony of the morning. She had pleased him the night before in spite of the misery of his mysterious quest, and he enjoyed a sense of being at home with her, which increased with the morning's interchange of ideas. She was even more lovely there in the sunshine, with the fresh color coming and going, and her wonderful eyes alight with the ecstasy of being alive than in her evening gown at the concert. He could not help but feel that she was most agreeable to look at, stimulated to converse with, and yet restful too, for she had a certain poise of mind unusual in the average girl of twenty. She seemed to have found a center of quietude and was free from quick, nervous motions of the hands that mean nothing, although sometimes using a gesture that was really expressive of her thought. The little party returned in time for a late luncheon which they took together. Miss Gilbert, said Robert during the meal, if your niece does not sing, it must be because she has never developed the gift. For the longer I am with her, the more forcible becomes the impression that she was intended for a singer. She is full of music. You must hear her play, replied Miss Gilbert. But when? inquired Robert. When will you play for us, Doris? repeated her aunt. Between tea and supper. She answered pleasantly without demur. Can you come to our little salon, said Miss Gilbert to the two men. It is almost too small for the music to have the most pleasing effect, but we can do no better here. There is no concert tonight at our hotel, said Dr. Alston, and I am sure the manager will allow us to have the hall to ourselves at six o'clock. Will that please you, Miss Avery? Thank you. I will be glad to have the sense of space of freedom. The violin seems to feel like a captive in a small room. The violin? cried Robert, leaning forward impulsively. Do you mean to say, Miss Avery, that you play the violin? I am not an artist, said Doris, flushing. But I love the instrument, and I am sure it loves me. It is human, you know. Fly swiftly round a wheel of time, exclaimed Robert, looking at his watch. Next to the human voice, I love a violin. Well, we must go now and rest after our climb, said Miss Gilbert, rising. We will be ready about 5.30. You may expect us to a fraction of a second, said Dr. Alston eagerly. To think she plays the violin, mused Robert aloud as he turned from the door of the pension after bidding the ladies good afternoon. And why is it that one is somehow quite sure that she plays it well, queried his father. The doctor's face was singularly luminous, but Robert was too absorbed in his thoughts to notice it. And their subject was not the mysterious lady of the oratorio, but of the very happy morning on the mountain. Dr. Alston had no difficulty in arranging for the use of the concert saw, and at six o'clock Doris, attired in a soft blue gown with long graceful lines, stood in the middle of the stage, holding her treasured violin as if it were a beloved child. A beam from the sinking sun touched her, glinting in the reddish-brown coils of her abundant hair and lighting her slim white fingers as she turned the instrument. More than halfway down the hall sat Dr. Alston and Miss Gilbert. Robert had gone up into a remote corner of the little gallery. Doris played from memory, first a difficult and brilliant concerto, 
Not a sound broke the silence when she had finished the selection, but the great room was vibrant in something more precious than applause, a response from the hearts of her little audience that reached her and inspired her. Then she played Miss Gilbert's favorite Scotch airs, in which the intensely human note blends with sound of wind and wave and the scent of heather. The room was growing dim, but no one stirred to switch on the electric light. The dust softly enveloped the figure of the performer. Now they were in Venice on the Grand Canal, the dark waters lapping the ancient marble steps of palaces, and the music of the bar Carole from Hoffman's Tales, full of infinite yearning and heartbreak pulsed with magical rhythm in the blood of the invisible auditors. Once more she played, and this time an interpretation of vital spark of heavenly flame, and now the spirit of the violin seemed to unite with her spirit as if both were disembodied, mounting aloft, set free from fingers and bow and strings. Heaven opens on my eyes, my ears with sound's seraphic ring. Lend, lend your wings, I mount, I fly. O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Up, up, up higher, fainter, sweeter, the last trembling, faraway note came floating down like a whisper. No one moved or spoke. Doris herself stood quite still. Then Dr. Alston walked quietly back down the aisle to the locked entrance, struck a match, found the switch, and turned on a group of sidelights. Miss Gilbert's stately head was bowed on one hand. Robert was not in evidence. Doris turned to lay her violin in its case, and Dr. Alston returned to Miss Gilbert, speaking softly to her as she lifted a tear-drenched face. Then he went forward to the stage, took the violin case from Doris, and assisted her down the steps. You have given me one of the best hours of my life, he said gently. It has been that to me, she replied, turning a transfigured face up to his. Ah, there comes Robert, said the doctor, as they saw him rise from the corner of the gallery and go out through the door to the stairs. Poor Robert had entered into a labyrinth of perplexity and introspection. During the playing of Doris, he had been unable to disentangle her personality from that of the singer in the Lucas Kirshaw. He was indignant with himself that the violin should have made the same appeal to his whole being as the voice had done. He had sworn fealty to his search, had felt in his profoundest depths that he had heard the one woman in the world whom he could love always through all the commonplaces of life, and now he scored himself with contempt that within a fortnight he had been moved so deeply by another. He masked the tumult in his mind by an unusually cool and reserved exterior. And although he thanked Doris courteously and spoke with keen appreciation of her command over the instrument, he found it easier to walk into the supper room with her aunt and to address the bulk of his conversation to that lady. But he had nearly forgotten the question that had burned on his lips that morning on the mountain. Suddenly he was conscious of a desire to put Miss Gilbert's promise of assistance to the test in order that he might possibly be disillusioned and free from the bondage that was becoming irksome through suspense. He leaned forward and said in a low tone, Miss Gilbert, is she here? Miss Gilbert turned and looked over her shoulder at the crowd, who were chatting and laughing around the small tables. I do not see her, she said. After supper, it was evident that the doctor wished to have a tete-a-tete -tete with Miss Gilbert, and Robert walked up and down the broad corridor with Doris. But there was a strange constraint between them and they were each relieved when the word was passed around that an impromptu concert would be held in the hall as several visiting artists had consented to play and sing. A number of people had come in from other hotels, and once more Robert approached Miss Gilbert and inquired again, Do you see anything of the lady? She flushed and looked in every direction but the one where Doris was standing, 
conversing with a celebrated painter from Berlin. Robert, she said after moving her head in the negative, may I advise you to give up this chase? Ask Doris what she thinks of it. And he did, sitting beside her in the last row in the gallery, while the first singer and her fussy little accompanist were conferring at the piano over a pile of sheet music. Angry with himself for what he thought were an unstable mind and fickle heart, resolutely smothering the surging emotion that swept through him at his nearness to Doris, forbearing to let his eyes meet hers, miserably yet blissfully conscious that the end of her gauzy scarf lay across his knee. He decided to make a clean breast of his difficulty, for Doris was so congenial that he knew she would be sympathetic in a sane and helpful way. Both your aunt and yourself must be aware of my unusual eagerness to meet the singer I have mentioned several times, and probably you have divined that my interest was something far more than ordinary curiosity or admiration of a beautiful voice. I had almost settled down to a single life when I heard it, but I felt at the time there in the Lucas Kirshaw that the voice was that of my twin soul appealing to all there is in me of chivalry, poetry, noble ambition, and unswerving devotion. I set out immediately to find the owner of that voice, but so far in vain. It has been impossible for me to concentrate on my work at the university or to find forgetfulness in books, music, or sleep. I came here with the hope of gaining the object of my quest, but she is still veiled in mystery. Coming down the mountain with you this morning, a strange calm came over my restless spirit. When I left you at your door after our dinner together, I suddenly realized that for a little I had forgotten my dream lady and was furious with myself that I could be capable of happiness short of discovering her. Tonight, while you were playing, I sat just here alone. Your violin became the voice, and I experienced anew the very same consciousness of a perfect response from my entire being. Imagine, if you can, Miss Avery, the maddening position in which I am placed. Even while your playing was bearing me up to the seventh heaven, I felt an insane desire to rush to the platform, wrest the instrument from your clasp, and dash it into pieces. What right had you to play like that? His tone was almost fierce. What have you to say about it? Do you wonder that I despise myself, thinking myself granite, and finding myself water? I would not say that you are either weak or changeable, replied Doris quietly, looking at him with clear, steady eyes, although her heart was beating to an unaccustomed tempo. And if Robert had trusted himself to give her more than one swift, nervous glance, he would have observed her heightened color. I would say that your nature is attuned to a certain vibration, and it happened that the voice of the singer and the strings of my violin each produced that vibration and so affected you in the same way. Robert shook his head doubtfully. You forget, he replied, that the vocal cords and the string of the violin were each only the instrument by which a woman's soul found expression. Could any two women be so exactly alike in temperament or in power of interpretation? Her eyes fell. She was battling to subdue a nervous trembling that threatened her outward calm. Mr. Alston, she said with an effort after a moment's silence, may I tell you something that has helped me through many a trial and perplexity? He ventured to look at her now that her lids were downcast. She had seemed to him to be bathed in a soft glory as she stood on the platform with her violin under her chin, and the light still lingered. Please go on, he said eagerly. Simply this, she answered, that one can be absolutely sure of having a place in the thought of God that belongs to no one else in the universe, and that nothing can keep from us what really belongs to us. 
John Burroughs has expressed his thought in his famous line, My own shall come to me. Do not blame yourself in this matter, but simply know that you and your affairs are being taken care of. You will find your singer. He was looking at her now so intently that he drew a glance from her, surprising a strange tenderness in her deep gray eyes. I will find her, he queried musingly. I am not sure that I want to. End of chapter 14